Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. So hello, everyone. I've got Brendan Fry on the line with me. Brendan and I met recently at the Rework Deep Learning Summit in San Francisco, where he delivered a really, really great presentation called Reprogramming the Human Genome, Why AI is Needed. Brendan was kind enough to agree to discuss his presentation and work in the field here on the podcast. Uh, So welcome, Brendan. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, You know, we've talked about uh, deep learning and uh, machine learning, AI in general, uh, and healthcare uh, several times on the show, Uh, not in a lot of detail, but just covering the news. And there's been a lot of uh, advancement in this area. One of the things that we talked about was uh, Beth Israel Deaconess did the work with uh, applying deep learning to breast cancer detection. Uh, Google DeepMind is active in applying uh, deep learning to eye disease. Uh, And when I think about examples like the ones that I've tended to see, they are often they often fit into the pattern of hey we've got a bunch of image data uh, we know deep learning is great for helping us kind of find patterns in image data let's uh, apply deep learning algorithms to see if we can you know either augment or replace uh, you know the medical technicians um, that are you know finding tumors and things like that uh, but when I th- heard and thought about the, your presentation and the way you walk through what you guys are doing, it struck me that, um, and, and let me know if this is fair, uh, but it, it struck me that you guys are applying or trying to apply deep learning at a much more fundamental level, like looking at the you know interactions between proteins and things like that that create disease. And that's not, that strikes me as just super exciting, and that's why mm-hmm. I wanted to really get yeah. uh, have this conversation. Yeah. So, you know, maybe to get things started, you didn't start your research career in genomics. How did you find your way uh, into the field? Yeah. So in the 1990s, I was a machine learning researcher. I did my PhD with Jeff Hinton, and uh, we were looking at image data and and speech and text as well. Uh, We published one of the first papers on deep learning in 1995, which, which appeared in Science. And so really, it was those, those are good days just discovering new algorithms and trying them out. But we didn't have big data sets and we didn't have fast computers. And so, and so that was really a big bottleneck. Uh, of course, that's completely changed now. But um, around 2002, uh, by that time I was a professor, but around 2002, my wife and I at the time uh, discovered that uh, the baby she was carrying had a genetic problem. Uh, we went and saw a genetic counselor and... Uh, and had to deal with very difficult news. It was uh, the, the feedback was there could be it could be nothing or it could be a really big problem. So um, uh, that was a really difficult experience emotionally to go through that and and really changed uh, changed my focus in terms of in terms of what I was doing as a researcher. And I decided to to stop working on on vision and speech recognition and text analysis and really focus instead on the human genome. And figuring out how to how to connect what's going on in people's DNA to to their health, and also how to how to figure out how to treat uh, treat disease. 
And so was my assessment of what you guys are doing relative to uh, some of the examples I provided. Is that fair? How do you think yeah. about the, the approach you're taking? Yeah, yeah, that's that's accurate. So the a lot of other players in this field are, are essentially leveraging their previous experience on on image analysis to to then look at medical images. Our approach is very, very different. We're, we're starting with the genome as the input, and the genome is just a, a long string of letters, A, C, G, and T, three billion of them. Uh, from your mom and three billion from your dad, and the challenge there is really to to figure out uh, the, what the language is. So, so first of all, the the language in the genome is not understood, and how how words are put together uh, to to lead to to life essentially is not well understood. And so, reverse engineering how the genome works is is a big challenge. And then, of course, uh, once that's done, figuring out how you can manipulate the genome, what you can do to to fix diseases, is the second challenge. Uh, so yeah, I've been working on that for about 13 years and applying machine learning techniques to to crack that problem. And in your talk, you presented some pretty staggering statistics. Um, I think it was that the lifetime risk for a genetic related disease is something on the order of 65 percent, uh, eight million births per year with uh, serious genetic disorders. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a big problem, um, and. You know, we've we've been able to sequence the genome, and now we can sequence individual genomes for about a thousand dollars. And in a few years, it should cost less than a trip to the grocery store to have your genome sequenced. Um, and so we can read the text of your genome. But the tragic truth is that uh, we are not currently able to accurately figure out what's wrong with you if you have a particular mutation, uh, let alone figure out how to fix it. And so there's really a big gap. I call that the genotype phenotype gap. There's a big gap between our ability to read the text of the genome and the and make sense of it and then act on it. And so those statistics you gave, like 8 million uh, births per year with a serious genetic disorder, that's it's, it's, it's kind of horrendous when you think we can sequence their genomes, we can find their mutations, but we don't really have the ability currently to figure out what's going wrong. And that's what we're working on. So both in my research lab and now at Deep Genomics, we're, we're figuring out how to how to understand those mutations and what their implications are. Uh, so, you know, I'd like to I'd like to understand all this better and I'd like the audience to understand all this better. You know, what's the way how, how can you give us kind of, a, you know, push us off the deep end, perhaps into yeah. biology and genomics? How you know how biology works and what are the, the various issues and implications so that we yeah. can start to have a conversation about this? Yeah, sure. So. A common pattern in the field right now is is people get a lot of data and then they kind of say, well, let's just throw it in a big bucket and give it to machine learning researchers and they'll solve it all. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, uh, and I think that's a really bad approach. Um, so our approach is very much a, a, a systems approach in that we try to understand biology. We, we bring to bear very carefully all biological knowledge that we can, that we can ascertain. And then we build our machine learning systems to mimic that biology. Uh, and so, for example, DNA is replicated. When a cell divides, DNA is replicated. So that's an important process. Um, the way DNA is used within a cell is, is DNA is transcribed into RNA molecules. Uh, RNA molecules are chopped up and put back together again in a process called splicing. Uh, those spliced RNA molecules, then they are translated into proteins. And then the proteins go off and do things in the cell. And one of the things the proteins do is they bind to DNA. So the proteins interact with DNA, and they actually 
interact with DNA in a way that controls transcription. Uh, the proteins also interact with RNA in a way that tr- controls splicing uh, and, uh, and similarly processes of translation. And so, and so you can think of biology as these multiple layers of processing, uh, complex interactions, highly nonlinear. And really the phenotype that we see, whether it's maybe cancer or a neurological disorder, is something that's gone wrong within one of these processes. And so, and so that's just a brief summary of, of what's actually going on in the biology. Uh, so in between the DNA and your phenotype, multi, multiple layers of complex biological processes uh, that are nonlinear and combinatorial. And, and so what we do is we build machine learning models for each of these processes. Uh, so right now in the biology community, there's just an explosion of data sets profiling what's going on within cells, essentially allowing scientists to peer right inside of cells and measure at the single molecule level uh, what's going on. And so there's this rapid growth of data sets in the last few years, and it's, and it's growing exponentially. And what we do is we use those, those massive data sets to train models uh, to, to mimic these cellular processes. Uh, um, and like to give you an idea, the kinds of data sets we're looking at, we have trillions of data points uh, that we use to train wow. our models. Wow. So for any given one of these interactions, uh, you know, before we even start talking about the computational side of things, just as a community of biologists, how well do we understand what's you know really happening in the uh, in the processes and when we have a data set that we're looking at? Yeah, well, that's that's one of the things that we spend a lot of time on here at Deep Genomics is basically taking known biology and then figuring out what kinds of data we have that allow us to better model that known biology. Uh, and then also try to account for unknown biology as well, which is one of the nice things that, that machine learning offers. Uh, people in the past have tried literally writing down programs, computer programs, to try to simulate what's going on in a cell. And as you might guess, those, <laughs> yeah, you might guess that kind of approach breaks pretty easily. Uh, first of all, we don't know all the rules. Second of all, quantities in the cell are real value. They're not, they're not binary and logical. Uh, and so that approach doesn't really work that well. People have also tried to write down stochastic differential equations describing uh, the concentrations of molecules in the cell. Uh-huh. And that'll work for sm- small, sort of very simple contained systems where there aren't many molecules. That kind of approach can work, but it won't work for, for living cells. There's just too many different molecules and the processes are too complex. So the approach that we take is a machine learning approach. We can measure different data sets for these different molecules and then we train uh, machine learning techniques to to mimic the relationships between those data sets that that emerge due to these biological processes. Is there some characterization for how many relationships there are? Well, the, we have a roadmap. We we have a, a technology roadmap at Deep Genomics, which lists all of the, the different modules that we we're trying to account for, and we have a couple dozen described in our roadmap. Um, but the number uh, is is much larger than that, and and growing every year as well. Uh, but having said that, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a notion of diminishing returns. You can get quite a bit out of just modeling one or two processes. Hmm. Uh, for example, I mentioned splicing where, where an RNA molecule is chopped up and then glued back together again. Uh, and that, that process depends on words, essentially, in the RNA molecule sequence. So RNA, like DNA, is a sequence of letters. And the machinery inside of the cell recognizes little patterns of letters or words. And those words tell the machinery how to cut up the RNA. 
And those letters, those letters represent protein. So the sequence of words is a sequence of proteins in the RNA or DNA. Is that right? Ah, well, there's two kinds of words in there. So, (laughs) okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one kind of word in the RNA molecule is a sequence of letters does encode a protein. So it corresponds to amino acids that make the protein, but there are other words in the RNA that are more like control commands. Hmm. So it's, it's kind of like in a computer, you have print statements and then you have control logic. Right. Right. And the print statements are like proteins. But what's even more important than the print statements is the control logic itself. Because hmm. that's that's what creates a system that's responsive to its environment and that can do different things. Otherwise, it would just keep printing the same thing over and over. OK. Um, and so the uh, the ability of the system to respond to different circumstances and, and be dynamic is, is really crucial. And that's and that's uh, achieved with these control statements, if you like, that are also embedded within the RNA sequence. So, uh, so we have a system that was trained to, to mimic this process of splicing. And, uh, just to give you an example, one of the leading causes of infant mortality in North America is spinal muscular atrophy. And there's a mutation, uh, in the DNA that leads to this disease. And, and that mutation is in the RNA molecule as well. And it causes this process of splicing to go wrong. It leads to so normally a certain chunk of RNA is included in in the protein that makes up a, a certain gene called SMN uh, SMN one or SMN two, and if there's a mutation, then that chunk is left out, and that leads to the disease. Uh, usually, those infants die within the first year of birth. Uh, recently, a uh, therapy was 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 uh, given FDA approval. Now, what's interesting about that therapy is that it doesn't target that particular mutation, it actually modifies another part of the RNA molecule, which goes to show you the importance of combinatorics, right? This is not, the biology is not something where there's a correlative effect or there's a particular mutation, you just need to fix that one mutation. Quite often you need to change something else in order to fix a problem that's occurring in the genome. And so how, I'm just thinking about the 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 scale of this system and the interactions you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, on the order of a dozen molecules, um, or sorry, modules, mm-hmm. uh, for a given disease, is it typically only one direct cause or are there all often, you know, combinations of things happening in these different, uh, subsystems that is what, uh, causes the disease to spring forth? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, one thing I've learned about biology is almost anything goes. Uh, <laughs> and so, and so there's sort of the what's called the central dogma of biology, which is very simple. And the, but then you realize that a lot more complicated things can happen. So yeah, in the context of diseases, there's there are diseases called Mendelian disorders, which are you can think of them as just a single mutation, if you like, in one gene, and uh, a very simple, uh, a relatively relatively simple mechanism. Uh, still hard to find those, still hard to figure out how to how to treat those diseases, but, mm-hmm. but relatively simple in the sense that it's just one mutation or one gene. But at the other end of the spectrum is the much more complicated situation where you have uh, many different uh, mechanisms or many different causes that combine together to result in the, in the disorder or the disease. Uh, so a couple examples there would be diabetes or autism spectrum disorder. And so if you take autism spectrum disorder as an example, uh, the phenotype isn't even simply described. It's uh, the whole range of phenotypes, really. 
and also the when you when you look at the heritability of the disorder you find out that it's not it can't just be pinned down to a single gene it's many different genes and even within those genes it's not just a mutation in a particular location it's a wide range of different genetic variability different mutations at different places within that gene mm-hmm. um and so the kinds of systems we're building can be used for both situations uh, so we can pin down the a single mutation that's causing a disease, and we can also use our systems to understand the complex combination of mutations that that is involved in a disease. Okay. Uh, let me take a, maybe a little bit of a tangent. Um, there were a couple of technologies that you mentioned in your presentation that I wanted to hear a little bit about. Uh, the first is one that I've uh, heard quite a bit about recently, but haven't really had a chance to dive into it, and that is CRISPR. Um, it sounds like, well, tell us about CRISPR. What is that, and what are the implications of it? Yeah, so CRISPR Cas9, it's a what's commonly referred to as a gene editing system, and it's a, a fairly straightforward idea. You you basically uh, program, if you like, a template into the into the system. So it's a a group of proteins, effectively, and other molecules, uh, and you essentially program a template into those. And then, in living cells, you uh, you insert these these molecules, the system, and then the template will find its match within the within the DNA. And then, once it's found a match. Uh, the system will then edit the DNA according to your specification. So there's different, and there's different ways that can happen. It could, it could be as simple as the template finds the match and then it sticks there, or it could be that the template finds a match and then and then the DNA is is, is actually edited, so it's changed. Uh, and that's so that's basically an example of gene editing, uh, of which CRISPR-Cas9 is is one instance. And so how does that play into the kinds of work that uh, you're doing uh, in your lab and at the company? Yeah, so, so there are a couple problems with, with gene editing systems, and, and one of them is off-target effects. And so, and so the template might not be uh, perfectly specific, which means the, the, the system might bind to the DNA in two different places and edit the DNA in two different places. Uh, and so one of the places, the correct one, maybe there's a mutation you're trying to fix uh, to address some sort of a disease. But what happens is the system will also bind somewhere else to some other region of the DNA and then edit the DNA there. And that could actually lead to a problem. And so that, and that's called an off-target effect. Uh, the other one is that suppose the other problem with these kinds of systems is suppose there's a particular mutation that you're trying to correct, trying to fix. It may be that the sequence surrounding that mutation is just not good in terms of designing a template. So you can't actually design a template in your CRISPR-Cas9 system that will that will work properly in terms of finding that mutation and then correcting the mutation. Mm-hmm. And so those are a couple of different problems with uh, these gene editing systems. Another problem is delivery. Uh, it just has to do with the fact that the, the machinery you need to get inside of the cell uh, it involves uh, several different molecules. And each of those molecules has different properties in terms of in terms of whether or not it can successfully be um, uh, be delivered into the cell. And so there's several different issues with gene editing systems, and and there's a few different ways in which our technology that we develop at Deep Genomics can be helpful. Uh, so one of them is is because we we have these machine learning systems that that can mimic biological processes. Uh, one biological process is this template matching. So how well the template matches the DNA, that's actually a, a biochemical process that occurs within the cell. And so our systems can identify 
uh, off-target effects and predict predict what might happen. Uh, the other example uh, is when you can't actually edit a particular mutation. So there's a mutation that a patient has and you'd like to fix it. You can't actually edit that mutation because the you, you can't design a, a, an appropriate template. Uh, so then what do you do? Well, one idea is maybe you can edit some other region of the DNA and somehow there will be some sort of compensatory effect. But mm-hmm. in order to do that, you actually need a model. You need a system that can mimic how that DNA is going to be processed. Because you can't, you can't just fix the mutation. You need to introduce an, a mutation somewhere else that is going to correct the problem introduced by the first mutation. Uh, so, for example, the, the first mutation, the disease mutation, may cause a problem with splicing. And what you'd like to do is introduce a mutation somewhere else that will reverse that problem with splicing. Right. And again, that have, and that again that that requires that you have some sort of a model for how the cell is going to process that piece of DNA to control splicing, and that's the kind of model we build. Okay, so you guys, the work that you're doing can improve these genome editing systems, and at the same time, the the work that you're doing around diseases, um, the genome editing system is one way that this work would eventually be uh, deployed, if you will, um, uh, put right. into into practice. That's right. At this point in time in deep genomics, uh, we have not developed any products to address that particular therapeutic approach, the gene editing system approach. But it is a research uh, endeavor at this point. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, why have I heard so much about CRISPR? You know, maybe not uh, this year, but towards the tail end of last year. Is it just that it was you know new, or were there new research results, or is it better, faster, cheaper? Like, what's the what was it's the big a great deal with tool for CRISPR? Research. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's leading to all sorts of breakthroughs in terms of research. So the ability of genome biologists to conduct different experiments, different screens, uh, fabulous tool for research. And in terms of medicine, it, there's a lot of promise. There are some issues that need to be worked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are being looked at. And, and, and I think it's very likely that it'll, it'll prove to be a, a useful therapeutic technique under some circumstances in any case. And so the other uh, question that I had in terms of just the context in which uh, you're, you're doing your work is you mentioned, and you mentioned this in early in our conversation now, is the uh, increasing drive towards cheaper and cheaper sequencing. And at the Deep Learning Summit, you mentioned some new technology that you were expecting to drive the cost down to as little as $20 within the next uh, year or so. What Can you give me a kind of a quick summary of the activity there? Yeah, yeah, sure. There's, there's just, as I mentioned before, this rapidly growing, diverse array of different biotechnologies that allow us to measure what's going on inside of cells. Mm-hmm. And genome sequencing is, of course, an important one. It's the one that kind of gives us the software, if you like, or the, the basic source code of the, of the person or, or the cells. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, there's technologies like the Oxford Nanopore Technologies and other companies have similar technologies uh, which will which will allow cheaper sequence, much cheaper sequencing, genome sequencing. But that's not the only technology that's helpful. There's there's other kinds of methods that allow you to, for example, look inside of DNA and see which genes are being transcribed and measure how uh, quickly they're being transcribed or the transcription rate of the gene. Uh, techniques that allow us to measure quantitatively how much protein is being produced and where the protein is being located within the cell by the by the molecules that that shuttle proteins around. So there's a, a lot of different kinds of biotechnologies being developed that allow us to essentially look inside of cells and measure what's going on. Okay. 
Um, so lots of stuff going on. Um, you know, maybe let's, I've kind of been just trying to satisfy some curiosities I've had about the biological side of this, but maybe let's kind of bring the conversation to machine learning and deep learning. Uh, and maybe let's start by talking through, you know, prior to the work that you and others are doing to apply deep learning, um, it sounds like machine learning, you know, traditional machine learning, linear regression and things like that were applied to these types of problems. How was um, talk about the kind of the standard to date approach? Sure. Yeah. You know, and, and I should emphasize that uh, deep genomics, the word deep is is referring not just to deep learning, but also these deep layers of biological processes that get stacked upon one another mm-hmm. that relates mm-hmm. DNA to the phenotype. And, and really, that's what's most crucial. And as you might guess, for each one of these modules, the first thing we do is try linear regression. It's uh, the simplest technique, quite often the best technique. <laughs> but uh-huh. when you have a lot of data, it does, it does help to, to look at more sophisticated methods. And so deep learning is a big part of what we do at Deep Genomics. Okay. Um, yeah, so really, um, in, in biology, two approaches have been taken, unsupervised learning and supervised learning. Uh, and so way, way back in the late 1990s, people trained hidden Markov models on, on DNA sequences. Uh, and those hidden Markov models were able to learn patterns that indicate the starts of genes and the ends of genes and the locations of exons within the genes. The exons are those parts of the genes that actually, they're like the print statements. They're the parts of the genes that tell you what the protein content is. Okay. And so, yeah, that was back in the late 1990s. Researchers were training hidden Markov models to to um, to model uh, gene structure. And can you give us a 30,000-foot view into what a hidden Markov model is? Oh, yeah, sure. So a, a hidden Markov model is is like a, a machine and, of course, simulated inside of the computer that has uh, several different states. And the, the model can switch back and forth between different states. Uh, and so, for example, it might be in the promoter. So, so the structure of a gene is there's a promoter, uh, there's uh, an exon, and then there's an intron, and there's an exon, and there's an intron, and that just alternates until the end of the gene. Um, there's a couple other parts to the gene, but for simplicity, let's just, let's just say those are the components of the gene. Mm-hmm. So the hidden market model would start off in the promoter state, and then it would switch to the exon state, and then back to the intron state, and then back to the uh, back and forth. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's so that's a, a hidden market model. It has a, a finite set of states. And then there's a model for how the or probability distribution that describes how the model switches between states. So, for example, if you're in the promoter state, then there's a high probability that you'll switch to the exon state. And if you're in the exon state, there's a high probability you switch to the intron state. And if you're mm-hmm. in the intron state, there's a high probability you switch to the exon state and so on. Okay. And so it's a probabilistic model that just allows this machine to switch back and forth between these different states. Uh, and then for each of the states, uh, part of the hidden Markov model is also a description of what the data will look like in that state. And so, for example, when there's a transition from the exon state to the intron state, the hidden Markov model also has a, a, a component or a probability distribution over what the DNA symbols will look like at that transition point. And, okay. uh, and so if you run the hidden Markov model, just, just simulate it, which means let it flip back and forth between these different states. And for each state, let it generate some of the DNA sequence. 
If you run the hidden Markov model, you'll end up with a synthetic, if you like, a synthetic gene sequence. Okay. And the way the hidden Markov model is trained is to make the synthetic gene sequence, the output of the hidden Markov model, match the real data as best as possible. And so in the late 1990s, researchers trained these hidden Markov models using actual examples of DNA sequences, and these models were able to automatically learn what the structure of a DNA sequence looks like. So they were able to learn that there's a promoter, there's an exon and an intron, and that there's alternation between these exons and introns. So that's one example, and that's, that's unsupervised learning. And there are lots of other examples of how unsupervised learning has been used in, in genome biology, uh, ranging from, as I said, modeling DNA to, uh, to actually just visualization, so dimensionality reduction, taking, taking for example, um, expression, gene expression measurements, which would be, say, 22,000 gene expression measurements, and compressing them down to a three-dimensional or a two-dimensional representation for visualization. Mm-hmm. So the whole, a whole wide range of different uses of unsupervised learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other, the other approach that's been taken is supervised learning, where you're actually trying to solve a very specific task. Uh, and probably the, one of the earliest uh, uses of supervised learning in the context of genetic medicine is what was called the genome-wide association study. And in the genome-wide association study, what you do is you measure for each patient a, a what's called the genotype, which is just a measure of, uh, of um, a variety of mutations. So those mutations might be measured using a microarray. Uh, people might have heard of the name SNP array. And uh, so SNP stands for single nucleotide polymorphism. And that's just a location within your DNA which could have a mutation in it. And so these SNP arrays would measure, say, 500,000 different possible mutations in your, in your DNA. Uh, another way you might measure genotype is whole genome sequencing. So you'd literally read out the 3 billion letters. Or if you, have, if you can do it for both your paternal and maternal DNA, you'd have 6, six billion letters. Hmm. Uh, and so whatever, however, you, however you go about measuring this genotype, you, you can essentially think of it as a vector. So it's going to be a sequence of... of um, of uh, letters, A, C, G, and T. Uh, so for a 500 nucleotide array, you'd have 500 letters. For a 500,000 nucleotide SNP array, you'd have 500,000 letters. Mm-hmm. And then you can imagine encoding that vector as a binary vector. So the letters A, C, G, and T, you can encode it using one hot encoding. So A is 1, 0, 0, 0. Right. And C would be 0, 1, 0, 0. So there's different ways of doing that. Or what's often done is what you do is you compare you compare the person's genetics to the reference genome, and so then you represent whether or not they have a a, a mutation there compared to the the reference genome, uh, something like that. And so so basically though you represent the person's genetics as a big long vector of zeros and ones, and then what you do is use linear regression to try to predict the phenotype. So you've got a whole bunch of patients with cancer and a whole bunch of patients without cancer. And and then you just try to predict the, whether or not they have cancer using linear regression, mm-hmm. and that's what a genome-wide association study is. So that's probably the simplest and and one of the original uses of of machine learning in in genomic medicine. Okay. okay. And what are the challenges associated with that approach? Well, if you think about it, what that approach is essentially assuming is that your phenotype is a linear function of your genetics. <laughs> Exactly. You so mean it's already, not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And and so, you know, we already talked about these complex nonlinear biological processes that relate your genetics to your phenotype. Uh, and we know from experience that this relationship is not linear. Uh, and so it's it's a it's an assumption that uh, has been used successfully to find mutations that are involved in disease, but it doesn't really accurately mimic the biological process. And so there are a few consequences of that uh, of that limitation, and and one of them is that the is that the genome the genome wide association study is not guaranteed to find the causal mutation. Okay. And so it may actually find a mutation that is enriched, for example, that is common in patients with uh, with cancer, but it's not guaranteed to be the mutation that actually caused the disease. And that's a big problem if you're trying to find a, a drug or a therapy to treat the disease because that mutation would be the wrong one. Um, now there, there are techniques called fine mapping where you you look for nearby mutations and try to mm-hmm. and try to couple up those mutations with the one you found in the genome wide association study, and that that fine mapping approach has been used to to find the the causal mutation, the one that should be treated with the drug, uh, but it's still limited and and doesn't it doesn't solve all of the problems. And I guess there are a few different other issues, and one of them. One of them is the amount of data that's required. Uh, and so because of the way the genome-wide association study works, if you think about it, there's 3 billion letters uh, in the genome, 3 billion possible places there could be a mutation. And for each of those locations, you're going to try to use that location to predict whether or not the person has cancer and then compare it against the experimental data. And so there's really 3 billion different places you can look. And the problem is if you don't have much data, just by random chance, one of those locations is going to match up with the with the phenotype that is just even if the DNA is just noise, even if you were just generate a whole bunch of noise patterns, uh-huh. you do that for your cases and your controls. Just by chance, one of the locations, one of the positions in the genome, you're going to get a good agreement between that mutation and whether or not the person has so-called cancer, mm-hmm. even though it's just noise. It's meaningless. And so and so. So maybe you get really, a lot of false uh, positives yes, there. that's right. A large number of false positives. Okay. And the only way to, to get rid of that in a genome-wide association study is collect more and more data. And, and that's the way you get rid of those false positives. But the problem there is Meaning you're not addressing uh, – you're trying to address it through kind of brute force statistics yes, as opposed exactly. to um, a better technique. That's right. That's right. You're just trying to get so much data that you overwhelm the the fact that you haven't modeled what's really going on well. Mm-hmm. So the approach we take, which is this deep learning approach, allows us to build models that take us from the DNA to these intermediate molecular phenotypes or cell variables, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, variables representing things like transcription and splicing. And those intermediate biological processes are really what's crucial for disease and so by modeling those explicitly, we can take this big sequence of three billion letters and use our machine learning technique to map it down to a much smaller space that represents what's really going on inside of the cell. Mm-hmm. And then we can relate that much smaller and more compact representation with the phenotype, whether the person has cancer or not. Okay. Uh, so it strikes me then that you know, basically what you guys are doing is uh, feature engineering for this particular type of system. Is that a fair way to think about it? It's a, it, to some degree, yes. It's, um, I would say instead of feature engineering, it's biological engineering in the uh-huh. sense that we're, <laughs> we're choosing, we're choosing because these features that we're looking at are fairly complex and, and high level. Right. Um, and, and also 
It certainly doesn't do what you're doing justice, but if you think about you've got all this raw data that doesn't really express or kind of model the underlying phenomena and you guys are creating these meta models, if you will, that does based on the raw data, it's kind of feature engineering-ish. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is we do have data for these intermediate variables. So, for example... Ah, got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. so one of, the, one of the ways you might think of it as feature engineering is we actually model where a protein will bind to the DNA, right? Mm -hmm. so, so protein binding to DNA is a very important biological process, and understanding how a mutation disrupts that is really important for understanding disease. Mm -hmm. So you might sort of say, well, what we've done is we've designed features that describe how the protein is binding to the DNA. Mm -hmm. But the way we actually uh, account for that is we obtain training data for where the protein bound. So we've got a data set of DNA sequences and whether or not the protein bound to that DNA sequence. And then we train a model for that. Mm -hmm. So if you like, each of these features is actually a machine learning system. And so that's where, that's where it's quite different from traditional feature engineering where you actually hand code the features. So we don't, we don't right. really hand code the features. We obtain training sets, and then we train the models to extract the features. Okay. Um, yeah. But it, is, you know, it, it, is, it does have that, you know, that, that sort of componential structure to it, and we do... There is this notion where each of these features is validated. We, we, we do carefully validate each of these, these. We call them a biomodule. So we, we validate each biomodule to make sure that it's really accounting for that particular biological mechanism. The other way you can think about this actually is multi-task multi training. Uh, okay. So in deep neural networks, one of the techniques that works really well is, is called multi-task training. That's where you you train your system to solve multiple tasks at the same time. Hmm, okay. uh, and so you might have, you might have a, a very simple example it might be a, a, the input is an image and you're training it to, to classify uh, animals. And at the same time, you're also training it to classify uh, some other, some other kind of object. And the idea is that, mm -hmm. is that the, what it learns about those two, for example, faces. So maybe you're trying to class, classify faces and you're also trying to classify animals and there's some components to those two different problems that are that are of shared value. For example, the detection of uh, body parts or the detection of eyes or something like that. And so by training the system to solve these two different tasks at once, it can learn subcomponents. It can learn intermediate variables, if you like, that are useful for, for the two different tasks. Mm -hmm. And so you can also think about what we're doing that way. We have this these very deep multi-layer architectures and they're trained to predict phenotype, but they're also trained to predict protein binding. They're also trained to predict splicing. They're also trained to predict transcription and these different processes that are going on within the cell. And by training them jointly to solve these different tasks, they get better at solving any one of them. And in particular, they can get better at detecting disease and also predicting the effects of therapies. Are the different modules... Um how do I ask this question? Are the, if you think about this as a, if the model that we're talking about here is a deep neural network, are the different modules expressed explicitly as layers, meaning like the, the, the network architecture, or does the training process kind of cause the modules to be expressed in the layers? Does that question make sense? Yeah, yeah no, it does. It's a good question. You're sort of asking what's the mapping between the, layers of biology and the layers of our machine learning systems. Yes. Yeah. So, so we have two separate maps, if you like, two separate networks, if you like. One network represents the biological processes, 
And for each, if you like, for each node and each arrow in that network, we train a deep learning system. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, if the biological network is ten layers deep, and each layer is modeled by a deep learning system with ten layers, then there's an overall depth of a hundred. Mm-hmm. So that's the one way you can think about it. And so, because the system is trained in a modular fashion, we can focus in on each component in the biological network, and then train uh, a, a, a deep neural network to to model that component. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes we use a shallow network. Sometimes linear regression is sufficient. So the complexity of each of those uh, biological modules uh, in terms of machine learning is is um, carefully selected using the traditional machine learning types of techniques, cross-validation and and uh, perturbation analysis and, and, and methods like that. And does it ever make sense to, rather than uh, training these models as a stacked uh, neural network to think of it more as like an ensemble approach where your modules are more separate and you're training them independently and then you've got some discriminator network? Um, you know, it's it's sort of the overall idea is that each of these modules does have a place within the biological system. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, we do we do sometimes run into situations where there are fairly different ways we can conceive of building each mo- module. Um, just like in traditional machine learning, you might have right. different types of, you might use uh, a random forest in one case in a neural network, and then you'd like to combine the outputs and see what happens. So that sort of thing happens for, for a given biological module. We might conceive of different ways we can build this, the machine learning system yeah. to account for that process mm-hmm. and then combine the outputs. The the other the other interesting aspect to this is the sort of end-to-end training, that once we put the, the system together, uh, then we can fine-tune it to make the overall system perform better. So even though each module is initially uh, built using a machine learning system, could be a deep neural network, uh, independently of the other modules, once we put them together, we can adjust all of the modules so that they work better together. Okay. Uh, in your presentation, you had a, a slide where you were talking about kind of applying, you know, what you were doing and applying AI to these types of problems. And you spent quite a bit of time talking about uh, inductive learning versus transductive learning and how that seems to be, um, you know, something that's overlooked uh, in practice. Can you recap Mm. that for us? Yeah, there's a big focus right now just on collecting data. And I think not enough attention is being paid to analyzing the data when it comes to genomic medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there are a lot of private and public efforts to just collect data. Uh, you know, the big genome projects, the, the 100,000 genome project, the way, the way success is measured is in the number of genomes as opposed to the information that's being extracted. Right. Um, and, uh, and so I think more attention needs to be paid on analyzing the data. Uh, now, if you look at the genome-wide association study where it's this idea of correlating mutations with the output, uh, that's what I would call as more of, more of a transductive reasoning approach. Where basically you're just comparing, you're comparing your mutation to the training data, and then trying to make a sort of a winner take all or a, or taking a voting approach, to trying to make a prediction for that mutation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, I, that's one type of machine learning. A different kind is inductive learning. And inductive learning, what you do is you you take your training data and then you build a machine learning model of what's going on, and then you apply that model to the test cases. Uh, so you apply the model in the future. And the advantage of inductive learning is uh, is generalization. So for inductive learning, you can learn 
if in, in sort of a, in one way to view it is you're learning the rules of what relates the input to the output. You're, you're learning more general patterns. Mm-hmm. And this allows you to, to take that learning and apply it to completely new circumstances. Uh, and so, for example, if there's a completely new mutation that's never been seen before, if you've used inductive learning, you might hope that your machine learning model can still figure out what's going to happen with that new mutation. Uh, in contrast, the transductive learning approach, uh, if there's a new mutation that's never been seen before, that transductive learning approach can't do anything. Uh, and so that's true for genome-wide association studies, for example. If there's a mutation in a patient that it doesn't exist in the training set, then the genome-wide association study can say nothing about that mutation. Hmm. Uh, whereas with the inductive machine learning approach, you might hope that it could take the system could take a, learn, a look at that mutation and say, ah, this mutation is going to cause something to go wrong with splicing, and that's going to lead to the disease. Hmm. And actually, that's what we find with our systems. So the systems we've trained at Deep Genomics were able to analyze mutations that have never been seen before, that don't exist in any database. Okay, okay. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really exciting, actually. So maybe let's let's dig into uh, the, the data aspect of this a bit. Um, in order to do what you're doing, um, I'm imagining you're benefited. You're benefiting pretty significantly by you know, new data sets coming online all the time. Like, how has that landscape changed, and what are some of the types of data uh, that you're looking at? Yeah, it's one of the most exciting areas right now is biotechnology. Just the the number of different kinds of data sets is growing very rapidly, and the sizes of those data sets. Um, so 10 years ago, we were looking at small data sets uh, consisting of a few thousand examples. And now at Deep Genomics, we look at data sets uh, with billions of examples. So we're mm-hmm. so the amount of data has just grown very, very rapidly and is going to continue to grow. Um, there are publicly available data sets. So these are uh, publicly funded research efforts that, from university labs. And uh, so there's plenty of publicly available data. And then there's also different kinds of proprietary data, data coming from patient populations or data that we generate within deep genomics to to study particular aspects of biochemistry and, and sort of fine-tune our models, if you like. Um, and then in terms of the in terms of what the data is telling us, as I mentioned before, it's uh, these data sets are measuring all sorts of things that are going on within cells. So it's giving us more and more accurate uh, re- resolution, higher and higher resolution in terms of pinpointing uh, different processes going on within cells and relationships between those processes. So I really do think that in, in five to 10 years, because of this massive growth in data, uh, if we combine machine learning techniques with all of these data sets, we're going to be able to produce models of these cellular processes that are quite accurate and reliable. Hmm. Um, I, I took a look at one of your papers, the paper that goes into the work that you're doing about around DeepBind, and one of the points that you brought up there was the difficulty of extending results that are seen with uh, in vitro analyses to in vivo analyses. And I'm assuming that, um, or that's that's, tied to this issue of the, or to what degree is this tied to this issue of the data sources that you're getting being primarily in vitro and mm-hmm. uh, maybe could talk through some of the issues there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's different kinds of data and in vitro is, is data that is measured under, it's in the test tube. And so it's data that's measured in the lab under very controlled conditions in vivo mm-hmm. at the other end of the 
spectrum is within the living organism. And so it's, it's the idea is that data would reflect more accurately what's actually going to happen in, in say, a patient. Um, and, and historically, there's been a big disconnect between these data sets. But as, as we sort of fill in, if you like, if we fill in the map of all the different kinds of things we can measure within the cell, and we also fill in the different kinds of conditions under which we can measure that data, uh, and so in vitro, in vivo, but also different kinds of organisms, different kinds of cell types, different tissue types. And as we, as we measure more and more data for these different dimensions, uh, if you like, of, of different conditions in which we measure the data, we get a more accurate understanding of how all those different kinds of data relate to one another. Mm-hmm. And so we're also building better and better models that are accounting for confounding factors or experimental bias or, uh, or an example we, of a confounding yeah. factor might be what? Oh, yeah. So there's different, a wide range of different kinds of confounding factors. Um, but I'll lump them all together into one group. Uh, so experimental bias is a big one. And experimental bias just means how your experiment was conducted. You know, what, what were the very, uh, what were some of the technical details that were used to obtain the data? And those things can have a big impact on the, on the data itself. Uh, actually, one of the first projects I worked on in genobiology, we we used a, a particular kind of unsupervised learning method to analyze the data, and we thought we discovered something really interesting. And it turned out what we discovered is who did the experiment on which day. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. <laughs> and uh, uh, so that's an experimental type of confounding factor. And then there are confounding factors that are biological uh, and so, for example, if you're looking at, uh, let's take the genome-wide association study approach, a very, very simple machine learning technique. Uh, and so if you're looking at a bunch of patients that have a disease um, and a p- bunch of patients that don't have the disease, the, the problem is that those patients are not really independent and identically drawn from some simple distribution. They're actually related to one another in some way. And so, so maybe half of your uh, cases are derived from a single ancestor that lived uh, 100,000 years ago or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of structure in the population is going to lead to dependencies, of course, between these measurements, and those dependencies can lead you astray. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, suppose you're one problem that all machine learning researchers are familiar with is suppose you have a training data of 100 examples and you take one of your examples and just replicate it a million times. Right. You do not have a training set, a bona fide training set of a million and ninety nine examples. Because you, you, you actually, biased your yeah, training so you just, data. Yeah, right. you just copied one of the examples a whole bunch of times. So that's so that's an example of a confounding factor that really does arise in, in human genetics and, and is really important to to avoid. And is the idea that uh, your approach or deep learning in general is uh, has a higher level of uh, is more impervious to these types of confounding factors? Yes. Yeah, that's that's right. And so because we're building the system to model these different biological components, we can factor out certain confounding factors. Uh, and so as I mentioned, for example, our system can detect mutations that have never been seen before, which obviously means that it's not sensitive to the uh, uh, to to the structure of, of the human population in terms of the mm. genetics. Um, okay. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, you know, I should add that of course our systems are, are being trained using data that has biases because basically all data right. in biology is highly biased. <laughs> right. So, um, and so it's not like the problem is completely gone, but yes, they're more impervious. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, well, this is, this has been fantastic. Um, maybe any uh, closing thoughts on, 
things yeah, that you well, guys guess, are working on or you know what you're excited about yeah the i guess the um the the challenges for us are so we have our systems are working well and we're making good progress in terms of uh, uh, addressing interesting machine learning problems as well as having an impact uh, in medicine Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one, one area that's interesting to talk about is, is the kinds of problems that we're facing in terms of our machine learning techniques and mm-hmm. how those relate to, uh, what generally the, the field is looking at and, um, and, and being challenged with. And one of those is, is building systems that can explain themselves. And so this has been a, people have been talking about this quite a bit recently is how do you build or train a neural network, say, or deep learning system that in such a way that it can actually explain what's going on. So it can explain why it makes a decision. Right, right. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's really important for, for earning trust. And so if we have a, if we have a machine learning system that predicts that you, uh, you know, a woman should, uh, has a, has a disease causing mutation in the context of say breast cancer and the system recommends a double mastectomy, then you really do want the system to be reliable and trustworthy and be able to explain, you know, why, why it made that decision, why it made that provided that advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's a really interesting area for machine learning. You know, I don't have the answer to, to how, how we do that, but people are working on that area and a lot more work needs to be done. Well, um, so on that point, uh, I did do an interview with Carlos Gestrin, uh, not too long ago. And, uh, our listeners might remember that one. If you're interested in this issue of explainability, uh, check out that interview. Uh, but uh, traditionally, if you can use traditionally when talking about deep neural networks, um, I guess people, you know, when we're looking at machine learning models, people look to other types of models uh, and not uh, deep neural networks because of this explainability uh, challenge um, that is, you know, particularly acute with uh, neural networks. Like, do you see? Where do you see that going? Do you do you see light at the end of the tunnel? Um, yeah, that's a good point, and I actually think that that belief is completely wrong-minded. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's the traditional argument for why you should look at simple techniques like linear regression or uh, random forests or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, so the the argument goes like this: to figure out an explanation for why a machine learning system made its prediction what you do is you should look inside of the machine learning system. You should look at the parameters. Okay, so linear regression is really simple because uh, for each input, there's only one parameter connecting it to the output. And so you can just look at that parameter, and if it's positive, it means that input has a positive impact on the output, and if it's negative, it has a negative impact. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the justification for looking at simple machine learning systems. Right. Okay, now this is why I think that's completely wrong-minded. Uh, if you if you turn to your friend and ask them why did you make the decision you just made, you don't crack open their skull and look at their synapses to figure out the explanation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That's not what you do, and yet that's what the traditional argument is for why you should use simple machine learning systems. You're going to look at the parameters, and so therefore you need a simple system. No, you don't do that. So what you do is you ask your friend to explain themselves. Well, why did you make the decision you made? So I think uh, the future of machine learning is all about using complex deep neural nets, but training them in such a way that they actually produce an explanation at the output. So we don't crack them open and look at the parameters. We, we actually train the system so that the output of the neural network is an explanation as well as a decision. Mm. Does that make sense? Uh, it does make sense. So I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of the picture I have in my head is um, 
you know, we talked earlier about uh, neural networks that are trained to produce multiple outputs. And so in this case, yeah. one of the outputs exactly. is the explanation and the other output is the, uh, you know, the thing we're asking it to make a decision. You got on. it. You got it. That's exactly right. So you can think of this as a multitask training problem. Yeah, where one output is the decision, the other output is the explanation. And so really, I think that's that's the future of machine learning in terms of explanations. And there are obviously some really challenging technical issues for, for how we get that to work. And it's not really working well yet. But I think that mm-hmm. is really where, where things where things will go in that regard. Um, and the other I guess the other observation I can make is is what's what I find really exciting about this area that deep genomics is working on is the kind of artificial intelligence we need. Uh, and so if you look at some recent big successes uh, like DeepMind's AlphaGo or Google uh, Google's re- results or Facebook, so if you look at some of the really exciting results that, that have come out of those labs, therefore things like uh, games, which humans invented, or image recognition, which humans have evolved to be good at, or right. speech recognition, which humans invented or evolved, and or evolved. Now, these are all tasks that humans are good at, whereas what I think mm. is really exciting about genomic medicine is that the AI systems we build need to go beyond what humans are capable of. Mm. So no human is ever going to be capable of understanding a genome or, or how to cure genetic disease, or no group of humans will. Right. It's so complex and so combinatorial. And so really what we need is superhuman AI. Um, and so now uh, it's making me think of... Uh this is making me think of a sci-fi book that I like by Octavia Butler. I forget the name of the book, but basically there are these race of aliens that come down to uh, an earth that's been, um, you know, kind of ravaged by, you know, disease and this gift that these, this alien race has is to effectively repair genetic disorder. What that has to do with AI, who knows, (laughs) but, uh, you're also, I mean, there's some interesting things kind of switching the subject here. There's also some interesting things happening up in Toronto, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're asking about things happening in Toronto. So I, I can't uh, talk a lot about it right now, but in the next couple of weeks, there's going to be an announcement uh, for a new type of artificial intelligence institute in Toronto. Uh, we have over $170 million of funding for it. And the idea is to and to build or, or rebuild uh, the the AI research capacity in Toronto and and ensure that we can use that capacity to to foster innovation in the startup community and and other and other uh, bigger businesses in the in the area. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that should be announced in a few weeks, and it should be really big big news for Toronto, and I think big news for the AI community more broadly. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, we'll definitely keep our eyes open for that. Uh, and so before we go, where can people learn more about uh, what you're up to and keep tabs on you? Yeah, so you can go to www.deepgenomics.com. Um, also, just Google me. And we have various papers uh, posted online there where you can, for example, a tutorial paper that describes the approach and, and how, how you can use machine learning, uh, not just deep learning, but just different kinds of machine learning techniques to to approach problems in genomic medicine. Awesome. Well, uh, Brendan, thanks so much. This was an amazing conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time out. You bet, Sam. It was a pleasure. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. A huge thanks to all you listeners out there. I appreciate all of the notes and comments that you share via the mailing list sign-up form, the show notes pages, via Twitter, iTunes, and all the other channels that you use to share your love for the podcast. 
And don't forget to visit our brand new Facebook page at facebook.com slash AI and give us a like and register for the Strata Hadoop giveaway while you're there. The notes for this show will be up at twimmelai.com slash talk slash 12. And there you'll find links to all of the resources mentioned in the show. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.